Hey there, welcome to the Law of Self-Defense. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you very much. Welcome to my ongoing reading of DC versus Heller, the seminal U.S. Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment. This is part four of four of that reading of DC versus Heller. Let's go. Hey folks, if you like this Law of Self-Defense content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider picking up a free copy of our best-selling book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles. It's a real physical book. It's not just a PDF download. You can check it out on Amazon, where it's five-star rated, over 1,400 reviews. But don't buy it on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and the shipping and handling. We only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. The book itself is free. You can get this book, learn more about it at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Like most rights, the right secured in the Second Amendment is not unlimited. From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. For example, the majority of the 19th century courts to consider the question held that prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful under the Second Amendment or state analogs. Although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. We also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and carry arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. It may be objected that of weapons that are most useful in military service, M16 rifles and the like, may be banned, then the Second Amendment right is completely detached from its prefatory clause. But as we have said, the conception of the militia at the time of the Second Amendment's ratification was the body of all citizens capable of military service who would bring the sorts of lawful weapons that they possessed at home to militia duty. It may well be true today that a militia, to be as effective as militias in the 18th century, would require sophisticated arms that are highly unusual in society at large. Indeed, it may be true that no amount of small arms could be useful against modern-day bombers and tanks— but the fact that modern developments have limited the degree of fit between the prefatory clause and the protected right cannot change our interpretation of the right. We turn finally to the law at issue here. As we have said, the law totally bans handgun possession in the home. It also requires that any lawful firearm in the home be disassembled or bound by a trigger lock at all times, rendering it inoperable. As the quotations earlier in this opinion demonstrate, the inherent right of self-defense has been central to the Second Amendment right. The handgun ban amounts to a prohibition of an entire class of arms that is overwhelmingly chosen by American society for that lawful purpose. The prohibition extends moreover to the home, where the need for defense of self, family, and property is most acute. Under any of the standards of scrutiny that we have applied to enumerated constitutional rights, banning from the home the most preferred firearm in the nation to keep and use for protection of one's home and family would fail constitutional muster. 
Few laws in the history of our nation have come close to the severe restriction of the district's handgun ban, and some of those few have been struck down. In Nunn v. State, the Georgia Supreme Court struck down a prohibition on carrying pistols openly, even though it upheld a prohibition on carrying concealed weapons. In Andrews v. State, the Tennessee Supreme Court likewise held that a statute that forbade openly carrying a pistol publicly or privately without regard to time or place or circumstance violated the state constitutional provision, which the court equated with the Second Amendment. That was so even though the statute did not restrict the carrying of long guns. It is no answer to say, as petitioners do, that it is permissible to ban the possession of handguns so long as the possession of other firearms, long guns, is allowed. It is enough to note, as we have observed, that the American people have considered the handgun to be the quintessential self-defense weapon. There are many reasons that a citizen may prefer a handgun for home defense. It is easier to store in a location that is readily accessible in an emergency. It cannot easily be redirected or wrestled away by an attacker. It is easier to use for those without the upper body strength to lift and aim a long gun. It can be pointed at a burglar with one hand while the other hand dials the police. Whatever the reason, handguns are the most popular weapon chosen by Americans for self-defense in the home, and a complete prohibition of their use is invalid. We must also address the district's requirement, as applied to respondents' handgun, that firearms in the home be rendered and kept inoperable at all times. This makes it impossible for citizens to use them for the core lawful purpose of self-defense, and is hence unconstitutional. The district argues that we should interpret this element of the statute to contain an exception for self-defense, but we think that it is precluded by the unequivocal text and by the presence of certain other enumerated exceptions. Except for law enforcement personnel, each registrant shall keep any firearm in his possession unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or similar device unless such firearm is kept at his place of business or while being used for lawful recreational purposes within the District of Columbia. The non-existence of a self-defense exception is also suggested by the D.C. Court of Appeals' statement that the statute forbids residents to use firearms to stop intruders. Apart from his challenge to the handgun ban and the trick or lock requirement, Respondent asked the district court to enjoin petitioners from enforcing the separate licensing requirement in such a manner as to forbid the carrying of a firearm within one's home or possessed land without a license. The Court of Appeals did not invalidate the licensing requirement, but held only that the district may not prevent the handgun from being moved throughout one's house. It then ordered the district court to enter summary judgment consistent with respondents' prayer for relief. Before this court, petitioners have stated that if the handgun ban is struck down and respondent registers a handgun, he could obtain a license, assuming he is not otherwise disqualified, by which they apparently mean if he is not a felon and is not insane. Respondent conceded at oral argument that he does not have a problem with licensing and that the district's law is permissible so long as it is not enforced in an arbitrary and capricious manner. We therefore assume that petitioner's issuance of a license will satisfy a respondent's prayer for relief and do not address the licensing requirement. Justice Breyer has devoted most of his separate dissent to the handgun ban. He says that even assuming the Second Amendment is a personal guarantee of the right to bear arms, the district's prohibition is valid. 
He first tries to establish this by founding era historical precedent, pointing to various restrictive laws in the colonial period. These demonstrate, in his view, that the district's law imposes a burden upon gun owners that seems proportionally no greater than restrictions in existence at the time the Second Amendment was adopted. Of the laws he cites, only one offers even marginal support for his assertion. A 1783 Massachusetts law forbade the residents of Boston to take into or receive into any dwelling house, stable, barn, outhouse, warehouse, store, shop, or other building loaded firearms and permitted the seizure of any loaded firearms that shall be found there. That statute's text and its prologue, which makes clear that the purpose of the prohibition was to eliminate the danger to firefighters posed by the depositing of loaded arms in buildings, give reason to doubt that colonial Boston authorities would have enforced that general prohibition against someone who temporarily loaded a firearm to confront an intruder, despite the law's application in that case. In any case, we would not stake our interpretation of the Second Amendment upon a single law in effect in a single city, that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence regarding the right to keep and bear arms for defense of the home. The other laws, Justice Breyer cites, are gunpowder storage laws that he concedes did not clearly prohibit loaded weapons, but required only that excess gunpowder be kept in a special container or on the top floor of the home. Nothing about those fire safety laws undermines our analysis. They do not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns. Nor, correspondingly, does our analysis suggest the invidility of laws regulating the storage of firearms to prevent accidents. Justice Breyer points to other founding-era laws that he says restricted the firing of guns within the city limits to at least some degree in Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. Those laws provide no support for the severe restrictions in the present case. The New York law levied a fine of 20 shillings on anyone who fired a gun in certain places, including houses, on New Year's Eve in the first two days of January, and was aimed at preventing the great damages frequently done on those days by persons going house to house with guns and other firearms and being often intoxicated with liquor. It is inconceivable that this law would have been enforced against a person exercising his right to self-defense on New Year's Day against such drunken hooligans. The Pennsylvania law, to which Justice Breyer refers, levied a fine of five shillings on one who fired a gun or set off fireworks in Philadelphia without first obtaining a license from the governor. Given Justice Wilson's explanation that the right to self-defense with arms was protected by the Pennsylvania Constitution, it is unlikely that this law, which in any event amounted to at most a licensing regime, would have been enforced against a person who used firearms for self-defense. Justice Breyer cites a Rhode Island law that simply levied a five-shilling fine on those who fired guns in streets and taverns, a law obviously inapplicable to this case. Finally, Justice Breyer points to a Massachusetts law similar to the Pennsylvania law prohibiting discharging any gun or pistol with shot or ball in the town of Boston. It is again implausible that this would have been enforced against a citizen acting in self-defense, particularly given its preambulatory reference to the indiscreet firing of guns. A broader point about the laws that Justice Breyer cites. 
All of them punished the discharge or loading of guns with a small fine and forfeiture of the weapon, or in a few cases, a very brief stay in the local jail, not with significant criminal penalties. They are akin to modern penalties for minor public safety infractions, like speeding or jaywalking. And although such public safety laws may not contain exceptions for self-defense, it is inconceivable that the threat of a jaywalking ticket would deter someone from disregarding a do-not-walk sign in order to flee an attacker, or that the government would enforce those laws under such circumstances. Likewise, we do not think that a law imposing a five-shilling fine and a forfeiture of the gun would have prevented a person in the founding era from using a gun to protect himself or his family from violence or that if he did so, the law would be enforced against him. The district law, by contrast, far from imposing a minor fine, threatened citizens with a year in prison, five years for a second violation for even obtaining a gun in the first place. Justice Breyer moves on to make a broad jurisprudential point. He criticizes us for declining to establish a level of scrutiny for evaluating Second Amendment restrictions. He proposes, explicitly at least, none of the traditionally expressed levels, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, rational basis, but rather a judge-empowering, interest-balancing inquiry that asks whether the statute burdens a protected interest in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the statute's salutary effects upon other important government interests. After an exhaustive discussion of the arguments for and against gun control, Justice Breyer arrives at his interest-balancing answer. Because handgun violence is a problem, because the law is limited to an urban area, and because there were somewhat similar restrictions in the founding period, a false proposition that we have already discussed, the interest-balancing inquiry results in the constitutionality of the handgun ban, QED. We know of no other enumerated constitutional right whose core protection has been subjected to a freestanding, interest-balancing approach. The very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. A constitutional guarantee subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them, whether or not future legislatures or, yes, even future judges think that scope too broad. We would not apply an interest-balancing approach to the prohibition of a peaceful neo-Nazi march through Skokie. The First Amendment contains the freedom of speech guarantee that the people ratified, which included exceptions for obscenity, libel, and disclosure of state secrets, but not for the expression of extremely unpopular and wrong-headed views. The Second Amendment is no different. Like the First, it is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, which Justice Breyer would now conduct for them anew. And whatever else it leads to future evaluation, it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms in defense of hearth and home. Justice Breyer chides us for leaving so many applications of the right to keep and bear arms in doubt, and for not providing extensive historical justification for those regulations of the right that we describe as permissible. 
But since this case represents this court's first in-depth examination of the Second Amendment, one should not expect it to clarify the entire field any more than Reynolds v. United States, our first in-depth free exercise clause case, left that area in a state of utter certainty. And there will be time enough to expand upon the historical justifications for the exceptions we have mentioned if and when those exceptions come before us. In sum, we hold that the district's ban on handgun possession in the home violates the Second Amendment, as does its prohibition against rendering any lawful firearm in the home operable for the purpose of immediate self-defense. Assuming that Heller is not disqualified from the exercise of Second Amendment rights, the district must permit him to register his handgun and must issue him a license to carry it in the home. We are aware of the problems of handgun violence in this country, and we take seriously the concerns raised by the many amici who believe that prohibition of handgun ownership is a solution. The Constitution leaves the District of Columbia a variety of tools for combating that problem, including some measures regulating handguns. But the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. These include the absolute prohibition of handguns held and used for self-defense in the home. Undoubtedly, some think that the Second Amendment is outmoded in a society where our standing army is the pride of our nation, where well-trained police forces provide personal security, and where gun violence is a serious problem. That is perhaps debatable. But what is not debatable is that it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. We affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. It is so ordered. And that, folks, is the controlling decision, the majority decision in the U.S. Supreme Court's District of Columbia v. Heller, 2008. And that's it for my ongoing reading of at least the majority opinion of D.C. v. Heller. I may get to the dissent at a future date, but that was it for the majority reading of D.C. v. Heller. The next time we meet, I will be reading from McDonald v. Chicago, the second of the three seminal U.S. Supreme Court decisions on the Second Amendment in recent years. Until then, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. If you like this kind of content, and I know you do, that's why you're here, you may as well consider becoming a Law of Self-Defense member. It's dirt cheap to at least try it out. You can get a two-week trial membership for only 99 cents. Just go to lawofselfdefense.com slash trial to sign up for that. In the unlikely event you don't like it and you'd like your money back, we'll give you a 200% refund. Most people, almost everyone, stays a member. And just being a standard member of Law of Self-Defense is dirt cheap. It's only about 30 cents a day, less than $10 a month. To be a member of Law of Self-Defense, get unlimited access to all our members-only content. It's the only way to have your comments and questions on live streams be addressed by me. Uh, you get a members-only podcast. Much of our content is limited, so only members can access it. Get all that and much more at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. Just try it out for two weeks, 99 cents, 200% money-back guarantee. It's a negative risk opportunity. I hope you see you as a member real soon.